you have your Bible, you can join me in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. Mark 10, 32 is where we'll start this evening in our fifth week of our Misunderstanding Sermon Series here tonight. Our message tonight entitled, The Wrong Request. Let me read beginning in Mark 10, verse 32. It says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. This is the conversation that comes to Jesus and his disciples, we're told, on the road, or in Mark's gospel, on the way. The way that Jesus has been paving for them, he's almost like a a pioneer uh, or a trailblazer, cutting his way through the jungle that others would follow at this point. We're told they follow at, at some distance, or that Jesus was walking on ahead of them, leading them both literally and figuratively, through this middle section of Mark's gospel that we've been studying. Step by step, Jesus has been revealing to himself this, the third of his passion predictions, trying to help them get an idea of what's coming next and what that means in the scope of who they are and what God's kingdom is like. And he's still pointed toward Jerusalem, still making his way to the cross, still making that known to the disciples. And we're told they're on the road They're amazed and they're afraid. They're amazed and they're afraid. It's part of that dominant theme in Mark's gospel, this lack of understanding we've been following along in the face of the truth that Jesus keeps giving them. They misunderstand on the whole and at every turn that God's way of suffering and sacrifice for Jesus is identical to God's way for his disciples. Jesus tries to tell them yet again what's coming and portray for them what it will mean to follow the way that he's leading them in. And yet as Jesus draws nearer and nearer to the victory of God that will come through the cross, the disciples do not, do not get any nearer to understanding. Even though he predicts his passion in some detail, they still fail to understand what's going on. They fail to see that Jesus' life is one of, of service and that his death was for others and that his, uh, his life and death through the cross was going to be for the ransom of many. In the midst of Jesus telling them this passion prediction of what will happen to him at Jerusalem, that they, in verse 34, will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him and three days later he'll rise again. And almost as abruptly as you read this list of awful things that will happen to the Lord, James and John enter the picture. The two sons of Zebedee, they came up to Jesus and say, Teacher, 
We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Well, boy, wouldn't that be nice? It's almost more like a scene out of Aladdin than it is a scene out of the Gospels. That someone would pick up the Messiah who explains his suffering and points his disciples to the cross and say, yes, 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 but can we have a few wishes or one or whatever it is that we ask for? This curious request that comes to us in verse 35 and following, James and John come to Jesus and, and basically they unfold and lay out for all of us the misconceptions that disciples of Jesus can so easily have. The misunderstandings that come from human nature when we start to follow a Lord like Jesus. And what we find as we read through this text is that James and John and the other ten and every one of us since have misunderstood the kingdom of God in at least four ways that I notice. I want to share with you those four ways that these two disciples reveal our misunderstandings in this passage, just like we have in the other weeks. It's sort of like a who, what, when, where, and how as you go down them. The disciples, in multiple ways, show us that they misunderstand ambition, and they misunderstand honor, and they misunderstand authority and family in the kingdom of God, all in a few simple questions. We're told in verse 35, James and John say, Master, we desire that you should do for us whatever we shall ask. They're basically coming to Jesus with their own ambitions held out to him. They want their own personal gain. Despite everything that they've read, their vanity and self-centeredness comes to the forefront yet again. Back in chapter 9, we had found this already, that the disciples were discussing amongst themselves who was the greatest. And Jesus interrupted them then. But apparently Jesus is interrupting that argument, did not squash it. James and John still have high hopes. These two disciples think that discipleship is about pursuing self-interest. That's their ambition misconception. Their greatest aim is for themselves. Now, ambition isn't always a negative thing. Of course, you can have healthy ambitions. It can be a positive motivation. The opposite is also true. Anyone with a wrong motive is, is more likely to have a negative ambition. And here James and John give us all the signs of a selfish, self-centered, egocentric desire of that negative ambition. They lay out on the table right at the heart of Mark's gospel their weakness in discipleship. They don't know the true cost of a high place in the kingdom of God. The highest in the kingdom of God won't be the one who comes seeking a higher seat. It will be the one who's trailblazing the way to suffering. Otherwise, they wouldn't have dared to make such a request and use these brave words. It wasn't wrong for James and John to make a request to be a part of Jesus' glorious kingdom. That was their request, after all. Verse 36 says, He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? He was kind enough to hear their question. And in verse 37, they say to him, Grant that we may sit one at your right and one at your left in glory. Well, 
Seems like a reasonable request if you're just expecting Jesus' kingdom to be rolled in and ushered in like everybody else did. Asking to be a part of it was no big deal, but what they have asked for is something they cannot possibly understand. They want Jesus to do what they want. Ask, uh, we want you, Lord, to do anything that we shall ask. They're asking for a blank check. And they don't care about what Jesus wants or the desires he's been portraying to them or his desires for all of his disciples. They misunderstand Jesus' message about the glorious kingdom of God. It wasn't ever about seats or position, but service. And their ambitions are all wrapped up in themselves. They're jockeying for position amongst the other disciples, and they have missed Jesus' message. He'll need to teach it to them again. And just in case you thought this, this is really a James and John problem, the passage doesn't let you off the hook. It's not as if Jesus' disciples uh, were 10 out of 12 correct. That 10 out of 12 disciples were simply following along and understanding the need for service and submission. No, we're told down in verse 41 that when the 10 heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. Oh, the 10, they started to grumble. They were not impressed. They began, the New American Standard says, feeling indignant with James and John. I wonder, why do you think the other ten were so upset just because James and John asked to be on Jesus' left and his right? I mean, it certainly could be that they were upset that these two disciples of all the twelve still hadn't had their eyes open, didn't understand what Jesus was trying to teach them. They may have been frustrated that James and John were so wrong when Jesus' message was so clear. But I don't think that's the kind of indignant that's described here, is it? That when they heard that James and John had made special requests, one to sit on Jesus' left and the other on the right, that Jesus would do for them whatever it is that they asked. They get upset not because James and John are wrong. They get upset because they didn't ask first. See, the other ten disciples don't get off the hook. They're angry not because James and John missed the point, but because they were quicker than them in making the request. It's only when they become aware of the selfish request given, the ambitions of James and John, that they become indignant because they too wish that Jesus would prefer them in his kingdom. And so the other ten overheard this blatant grab for power and they get upset and they start suggesting and harboring the same exact vision. Selfish ambitions are contagious in that way, aren't they? You find yourself around a bunch of people who only look after themselves And you start to get the feeling that you better look after only yourself too. And the world does that to us, doesn't it? It teaches us in that way, indoctrinates us in that way. That when we are surrounded by people who have only or primarily self-interest, we get a lot more interested in primarily ourselves. And Jesus all along the way has been trying to open the disciples' eyes and ours with them. That life can be more than being concerned only with personal gain, with getting ahead, with selfish ambition. And so the New Testament writers would say, do nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. And the other ten disciples 
show us the degree to which selfish ambition and rivalry become the raw material that Jesus has to use, that that's what he's working with when he has to fashion disciples for himself who will carry on his message, not men and women who are ready to lay down everything and put themselves aside, but people wrapped up in human nature and blinded by selfish ambition. It's a sad state of affairs. And probably the best news about a story like this means that if Jesus can make disciples out of people with these kind of questions, he might be able to make disciples out of you and me too. Because more often than not, our first thought is about ourselves or about our interests or about our own preservation. Sometimes we're amazed, other times we're fearful, and we drag behind Jesus as he leads the way, and all we can think about is, what's in this for us? What will I get at the end of this road? James and John say, Lord, we want you and wish for you to do whatever it is that we ask. They misunderstood what ambition is about in the kingdom of God. They also greatly understood what honor in Jesus' kingdom is about. They thought that discipleship was about place or position, where it is that you occupy that would determine your status and your rank in God's kingdom. That's why they ask, by the way, for a seat at Jesus' left and right. It's not, uh, it's not bad that they want to be with Jesus in glory. The problem is they have asked for the primary positions. No matter where you look, the two places described here are the places of honor everywhere. We know that from first reading, not just in the East or in ancient times. Almost any public dinner or royal court, the left and the right, beside the person of honor is where you get honor. And traditionally, the seats to the right and to the left of the monarch or the king were seats of honor that symbolized a special dignity, not ordinary seats, but seats of great importance. And these two places that have been requested by James and John are about status and about rank and about getting above all the others. They're looking out for their future. And the honor that will be bestowed upon them by where they sit. But they misunderstand. Because Jesus teaches them that honor and glory and status don't come from the position that you occupy. But by the posture with which you serve one another. What about you? Do you find more honor or encouragement or entitlement in the places you hold? or in the people you're able to serve. And the quest may be for places of honor at the the messianic banquet or or a position of eminence and authority at Jesus' great coming again, when Jesus is enthroned at the end. But this request to sit at Jesus' left and right comes only out of their desire to be lifted up. And the great irony in the Gospels and in the story of Jesus is that in the end, there will be one on his left and one on his right. And both of them will be lifted up. And it will look nothing like James and John had imagined. That's why Jesus says in verse 38, you do not know what you're asking. Because the two who wish for the highest honor have described the two thieves who will hang with Jesus on the cross. 
Who is at Jesus' left and at his right at the end? Those suffering, not those who receive honor. And even though the promise of the seats of glory belong to those for whom they've been prepared, Jesus is teaching them that lordship comes from below, not always from above. That's the lesson they learn next. Their other and third misconception, not only have they misunderstood what ambition in the kingdom of God ought to look like and what honor is like in Jesus' teaching, but what authority means in God's kingdom. See, verse 42 says, Jesus called, to, uh, Jesus called them to him, those ten that were grumbling and indignant, and says unto them, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In calling, uh, but this is not, he says, but it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. To illustrate his point further, Jesus contrasts kingdom authority with Gentile authority. He tells them in, in fewer words, power in your world works like that. People lord it over one another. Gentile rulers rule in this way. They hold it over people, lord it over them. That's the expected practice in the ancient world. But it's not that way, Jesus says, in my world. He's trying to show them that the rulers of heathens and leaders of those who govern them, people who do not believe in God, use one kind of authority and one kind of lordship. But mine is totally different. He's teaching them. That in God's kingdom, things are upside down. That sometimes power comes from below and not always from above. That rulership and service stand in, in sharp contrast in their world to one another. It's because of that tension between them that Jesus can speak with such power and authority in this passage and say, in your world, service and lordship are so far apart, they're almost opposites. But in my world, they've been brought together. The servant is the one who will be lifted up. Authority is given to the one who serves. And the disciples, if they're going to understand Jesus' way, are going to have to throw authority in the Gentile form aside and embrace the kind of rulership that Jesus models. Rulers like Caesar or Herod the Great or Herod Agrippa and other Roman magistrates that they would be familiar with had been regarded as the most powerful figures in their day, in all of history since. Jesus says they're simply Gentile rulers who lord it over. But I serve from under. The disciples, in this question to Jesus, about where they can sit and doing whatever they ask and then getting upset about it, they have shown him and showed us how dangerous it can be to misunderstand ambition and honor and authority in the kingdom of God. And Jesus keeps trailblazing the way ahead as they follow behind in fear, trying to show them a better way. And the last thing, the fourth misconception that comes to light in this passage that the disciples assume that family in the kingdom of God is like family 
in their world, that it is built by blood relation, that genealogy, the connectedness of your heritage, gives you the greatest status. All indications are, and our best understanding of the different relationships described in the Gospels suggests that James and John have a unique relationship with Jesus. We're told again and again, the sons of Zebedee, so you don't miss it. They were closer than all the others, probably first cousins, related to Jesus himself, coming up to him saying, Master, we desire that you should do for us whatever we shall ask. You see, in their world and their value system, being most closely connected to the leader meant that they had the greatest chance at honor and status in his kingdom. Life in their whole world was viewed and interpreted in this context of familial relationships. And James and John thought they can highly and easily ascend to higher levels because they're so close to Jesus. They're connected by blood. They're connected in his ministerial group. And they are even closer in his inner circle. And they took advantage of that close relationship that they had with Jesus, the influence of their relatives, and began to think that maybe this will lead them to get whatever it is they ask and to be with Jesus on the left and on the right. It turns out in God's kingdom, kinship, family, is not about blood relations in the way that the world conceives it. As if people who are not related by blood are less likely to receive the kingdom of God. They thought that blood meant they were bound together by some kind of tribal or racial connection. And Jesus is suggesting a way of life that's different than all of that different than the perfectly accepted world in which he lived. Jesus suggests that a new kind of family is being formed by being connected to him. That something that supersedes, even comes before one's own family, is breaking into earth through his death and resurrection. And if you can become a part of that, the children of God can become a new kind of family. A collection of people who are not genealogically related, but who nevertheless serve and love one another as family. I went and uh, visited a few family members recently. In fact, several of you uh, asked when I came back. I missed a Sunday uh, a couple weeks ago to visit my grandmother. Uh, She had, in January, discovered uh, a spot on her kidney that was concerning and led to a hospital stay. And any time you're in your late 80s, it was somewhat serious. A lot of the family had, had been visiting her and They'd identified this tumor but decided they weren't going to treat it or even do a biopsy of it. It it was just going to be what it was for as long as it could be. So a lot of the family was visiting her in the hospital. I got the chance to go after she had made it back home and spend a weekend with them and take her back to church for the first time in months. Her strength and her health hadn't allowed her to go and, and worship. She worships at a small little church in the outskirts of southeast Texas, is actually the first church that ever called me a minister. I would guess on any given Sunday, they have uh, 40 or 50 folks that worship and love the Lord, not much different than the room like this, a sanctuary about this size. And we sat there and worshiped, and it dawns on me now that uh, my family was sitting on her left and on her right, but that's beside the point. She has a lot of descendants and a few favorites. Our fourth kid is her 23rd great-grandchild. She's up to 27 already. 
We sat there and we worshiped. And at the end of the service, there had been more family than usual because it was her first day back. So even some who don't always go to that church were there. And, and it was determined we need to take a picture with Nana before anybody goes anywhere. So we all gathered up at the front of the room. Oh, I'd say 20 people or so. But we were missing a few. And you can't leave a family member out if you're going to take a group photo at the end of worship. Somebody was taking care of the kids at Children's Church, so we sent a representative to come back. We don't want to leave anybody out. Everybody else is milling about at the back of the sanctuary. Our family was up at the front. We gave uh, one of the church members a phone, and we're all standing in formation. You know, photo formation. That is an impatient position. Uh, No one can uh, wrangle a group to stay there long. And finally, the last family member made it into the picture. We didn't want to leave anybody out. As I looked at the camera, I saw the person in the middle aisle taking our picture. We all smiled, and I couldn't help but notice the array, a smattering of folks that were still left at church standing in the back. And you know what? Every single one of them looked left out. Because they were all family. And we'd made the mistake of thinking that uh, the most excited people for her return to worship were the people who were blood-related. But it turns out that if you follow Jesus, honor and authority are upside down. Ambition is not about yourself, but about others. And even family is bigger than you ever imagined. And when you make the Jesus of the cross your Lord, it turns out we're all blood-related. Thank God. Thank God for His grace. Let's pray together. Father, in our world, things can be so backwards and so wrong that it begins to train us to put ourselves first, to think that we can lord things over one another, to forget that your family comes first. We pray, Father, that as we follow your lead, as you pave the way, that the way that we see the world we begin to become much more like how you see the world. God, as we receive the kingdom in our midst, help us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen.